What does God require of us? Is it for us to do big, extravagant actions to demonstrate our faith, or are small acts of devotion what God wants? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. This week, we'll look at what God says is the way of life that pleases Him in our lesson entitled, Micah. Now, this is about Micah the prophet, and it's subtitled, How Can We Please God? The Eternally Important Question. And to answer that, we're going to focus on Micah 6.8. What prompted this lesson was a question that was asked by a member of my Sunday school class where she wanted to know what does God expect from us and specifically she wanted to know it in response to some that she had some people that went to a church that apparently says that we are supposed to live beyond the expectations of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and I must admit when I first heard that I thought oh boy Um, I thought I'm not sure what living beyond the expectations of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount means because I'm pretty sure that with those really high standards, not very many of us can even come close to living up to both of them. But one thing I do know, that regardless of what that phrase meant or whatever, and I don't know because I don't know the people that that really were saying it, one thing I do know is that the heart's desire of many of us is to please God. Now with that in mind, I have a passage I want to look at in depth that I trust will give us some guidance in it. We've been, in going through the Bible, looking at the different prophets, and this one comes from the prophet Micah, who said, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He's talking about God, of course. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, in this lesson, we're going to look at each term and what the words mean. Then, at additional verses related to the key terms, I'm going to suggest applications that will help us be doers of the word and not hearers only. And the whole goal of this is to help us to know how to act in our current world and always. And I trust that you will find this lesson in many ways very restful because what this verse requires of us is very possible for all of us to do. Now, before we get into the specifics of the verse, I want to give you a little bit of the history and setting of the book that it comes from. Micah is one of a long line of prophets to God's people. He prophesied about the same time as Isaiah, around 773 AD. Now, previous to him and Isaiah preaching, let's go back to 930 AD. BC, and this is when the kingdom split in two. Under David and Solomon, it had been one kingdom, but in 930 BC, it split in two with the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. Sadly, the northern kingdom of Israel had turned to worshiping other gods. God sent them prophets. The first two major ones that we read about were Elijah and Elisha, and they preached from 870 to 842 BC. Then following them, Amos, Jonah, and Hosea all prophesied from approximately 785 to 722, and their prophecies were primarily to the northern kingdom, to Israel. 
They warned the people of God's judgment because of their sins, which were clearly defined in the early books of the Bible and in the covenant that God made with them and the covenant that they agreed to follow. But they didn't follow it. They followed other gods, they worshipped other gods, and all of the pagan practices that went with it. And so, in 722 BC, judgment came on them. They were conquered by Assyria and deported from the land, led off as captives. Now, Judah saw what was happening to Israel. It wasn't like this was something far away. I was kind of actually comparing a map of Israel and Southern California where I live. And if you live in Southern California, and this is, they're approximately the same size actually as Israel, this whole area. If Monterey, San Luis Obispo, and Santa Barbara counties, if all of them, and these are just all north of where I live, if all of these counties were destroyed, and just Ventura and Los Angeles County were left, that's kind of what it was like back then. The nation right next to them, just like the counties right next to us, it was completely destroyed. The people carried away. So the people in Judah knew absolutely everything that had happened. They knew that Israel was destroyed because of their sin that was blotted out as a nation and taken captive. But knowing and seeing all that they did, did that change their behavior? Did that change their attitudes towards God? (laughs) No, unfortunately it didn't. But it also didn't change God's love to them. And so God didn't give up on them. He continued to send them prophets, more prophets to teach them, to talk to them, to try to draw them back to God. The primary ones at that time were Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zephaniah, in addition to Micah. All of them warning, challenging the people to live as God wanted them to live. Now, I won't go into all of the political and historical specifics at this time about them, but I want to talk about, I want to just narrow down to this one verse in Micah, because what matters most to the Lord, I don't really think is all these big political things. It's how do we as individuals act? We're responsible for how we respond to things, no matter what is going on. History moves on. History changes. Nations come, nations fall, kings rise, kings fall. But God's requirements for his people stay the same. Now let's look at a really important overall pattern in our obedience to God. And that is that little things mean a lot to God. Micah 6.8 is not about extravagant actions. It's very similar to, and it reminded me of the verse in the New Testament when Jesus said in Luke 16.10, If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And the implication, of course, is then he won't give you greater responsibilities. Little habits of life and work show what's truly in our hearts. Now, 
when I, and I've shared this a number of times before, when I was growing up in the faith, I was very much involved with the Navigator Ministry. Now, the Navigators, I was um, part of it really not long after it had been founded, with the exception of Lauren Sani, who was the original founder of it. I knew all of the people that helped found the ministry. I lived in Colorado Springs. Uh, Glen Erie was where its headquarters were, and I was, was very, very involved with it. Now, it's kind of interesting because the Navigators were founded by a bunch of ex-Marines. And uh, that had a really big influence on how they did things, how they they termed things. They they talked about B rations as your Bible rations, and they had you know they just had all kinds of military analogies. But one of the things that they did also is they had a really big emphasis on, and this came from their military training, but it's also very biblical on discipline on how life disciplines are really foundational to spiritual disciplines. And I've, I've often thought about them as I've gone through life. And now, it might be different for you, but I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever seen an overweight ex-Marine. You can always tell who they are. Uh, they still have this air of discipline and self-control and purpose if they were if the Marines were a career life choice for them. And that discipline oftentimes carries over into all of life. And the navigators really stressed that being careful in your life disciplines helps you become more careful oftentimes in spiritual disciplines, a lot of this is based on our habits. What are the habits of our life? And habits can always be changed, no matter what your age. It's never easy to change a habit, but it is possible. And it's also really foundational to remember that God, in addition to being very pleased with little things, is not impressed with big things if they're not done his will and in his in his will and in his way one of i think the scariest passages at first reading is in matthew 7:21 through 23 and i'm going to explain the meaning of it in a minute so don't get upset when i first read it but this is where it says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, what is he talking about there that is the will of the Father in heaven? He says that it isn't just great, big, impressive things that you do, but we're supposed to do the will of the Father that's in heaven. So what is it? There's always the temptation to think that it's some big sacrificial action that's going to please God, but that isn't it. The same question and God's answer is very clear to us in the book of Micah. What does God want? 
Back in Israel, I think people very petulantly ask this question. Mike has been telling them that they need to return to God and, and all sorts of challenges to them. And then we get to Micah 6, 6, where they answer him and they say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer the firstborn of former? my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Like they're saying, you know, what, you know, what do you want, God? Do you want all these sacrifices? Do you even want me to offer my children as a sacrifice to you? And we need to remember that that was a current pagan practice. The people at that time worshipped a god called Moloch, and it, it was absolutely horrible. If you're watching the video, you can see one of the images of it where they had this huge statue, and it has its arms outreached, and what they would do, and then in its belly was a fire. And actually, in some of the more realistic um, images, the arms are sort of tilting back, and what they would do, they would actually put a live child in the arms of this idol and it would roll back a living child and be burnt alive as a sacrifice to this pagan god and again and again in the old testament god says i abhor that i never ask for that don't do that you will be punished because of it but here they're saying is that what god wants and micah answers them he said he has shown you what is good. Now, keep in mind that little phrase, because the things that God is telling them about, that he wants them to do, these were things, and I'll, I'll give you verses on them, that were repeated again and again and again previously in the Old Testament. These are not new things that God is telling them. As Micah says, he's shown you what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now let's look more, much more closely at each one of these requirements because there it is, right there. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Now to act justly, what does that mean? There's two words in each of these phrases. We have the act and then we have the justly. Now to act means to do something, to work at it, to make, to produce something. It's an action. You're not just supposed to think about it. And then justly is the word mishpat in the Hebrew. It means judgment, justice. It's an attribute of God. It's what's proper, what's fitting, what um, what people are supposed to do. It's their right, their privilege, their legal due. Now the application of putting these two words together to act justly, it's beyond thinking that it's just a good idea that we have a just society or that we treat one another justly. It's actually doing something, doing what is right, aligned with the attributes of God, all the actions that are in line with God's laws. Now, acting justly, too, it's a way of life that God wants from us, not just a singular action. Now, some commentators contrast it with the word sadak, which is also translated justice, which means righteousness. But mishpat, 
in contrast, has to do with all God's laws. In Leviticus 18.4, for example, it says, Ye shall do my judgments, mishpat, and keep mine ordinances, to walk therein, this continuous action. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man shall do, he shall live in them. We're supposed to live in God's ways of acting justly. Also, again and again and again in the Old Testament, and it's ramped up in the prophets that this is justice for all people, not just the rich and powerful. The care about all people, that's one of what should be a distinguishing mark of God's people. Now, some magic- there's um, a passage that I want to read from Christianity Today that is additional commentary on what biblical justice is. So that's what I'm going to be sharing with you right now. And I'm quoting, Justice flows from God's heart and character. As true and good, God seeks to make the object of his holy love whole. This is what motivates God throughout the Old and New Testaments in his judgments on sin and injustice. These judgments are both individual and corporate in scope. Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. It stands at the center of true religion, according to James, who says that the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. An earlier scripture says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Now, a little bit more about justice and peace, and this is continuing the quote from Christianity Today. One of the clearest and most holistic words for justice is the Hebrew word shalom, which means both justice and peace. Shalom includes wholeness, or everything that makes for people's well-being, security, and in particular, the restoration of relationships that have been broken. Justice, therefore, is about repairing broken relationships both with other people and to structures of courts and punishment, money and economics, land and resources, kings and rulers. Now let me share with you some other verses on justice. There are many, many, many of them throughout the Bible, and Almost all of them are in connection with justice for the less fortunate. But let me just read you some of them. Psalm 82.3 says, Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Zechariah 7.9 and 10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Amos 5.15 says, Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate, that it may be it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Psalm 106.3 says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And then, of course, the wonderful statement in Amos 5.24, where he says, Let justice roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
Now, the next statement is to love mercy. And we're reminded in Matthew 12, 7, where Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Again, going back to what God said there in, in Micah, where the, when the people asked, do you want all these sacrifices? And God said, no, I want justice. I want you to love mercy. Again, there are two words, to love and then mercy. So let's look at love. This is the Hebrew ahaba, and it means human love for a human object, man towards man, man towards himself, between a man and a woman, romantic sexual desire. And it also means God's love to his people. And then mercy is the word sheshed. It means goodness. It means kindness. Oftentimes, Matthew 6, 8 is translated to do justice, to love kindness. The two words are very interchangeable. And the combined meaning of both of these words, of course, is to love mercy, to love kindness in the same way. God loves us, and that's a lot. Now, other places where this love, ahaba, is used in examples of Old Testament love. In Genesis 29, 20, it says, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, it says, But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then Hosea, oh, the story of Hosea, who continues to love his wife, showing her mercy even when she was unfaithful to him. And he's one of the best examples of mercy because he continued to show that love to her even when she treated him very badly. It's easy to be kind and merciful to cute puppies and nice little kids and, you know, whatever. But when someone betrays you, when someone just goes against everything that you've given them and just literally spits in your face and runs away, that's when it's God's mercy that has to flow through you. Now, how are we to show kindness and mercy with the same intensity that Jacob loved Rachel and served seven years for her? With the same passion, the Lord loved his people and redeemed them, and as to be as loving as Hosea loved an unfaithful wife. Loving mercy in this way goes far beyond just tolerating the sins and irritations of others. Sometimes we think we're doing just the greatest job ever if we just don't really strike out at people. If we just keep our mouth shut, clench our teeth, and they know, they know that they made us mad, they know that we're irritated, they know whatever, but we're keeping ourselves under control. <laughs> no, that's not the kind of mercy and love that Jesus is talking about. It's from passive to active actions for the good of the person that we're called to be merciful to. Here's some additional verses on mercy. It is a characteristic of God. Deuteronomy 7, 9 tells us, Therefore know that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. He's a, it's the source of our help. Psalm fifty nine sixteen says, I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defense 
and refuge in the day of my trouble. It's required of us if we want mercy. James 2.13 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's part of wise living. Proverbs 3.3 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. And it reminds me also, when it's talking in this way, about how in Ephesians 4.15 it says that we ought to speak the truth in love. Here it's mercy and truth combined together. And we need to remember that without mercy, we, we need to be so thankful that our God is a merciful God because His covenant, His power, His laws, and His truth would be unbearably harsh if it were not for his mercy. And it follows then, if we want to be like our God, if we want to be his disciples, if we want to represent him in our world, we should not be harsh and demanding. That's a distorted idea of spirituality and strength. Some people think that they're being really godly when they, you know, beat up on people and are real hard noses and, well, you didn't follow this rule and you didn't do that and you weren't, you know, all that kind of thing. That is not behaving like God is. No one is impressed with how right you are or will thank you for grinding them down with accusations of a wrong done. Nobody's going to say, oh, thank you so much for making me feel so miserable and for just beating on me and beating on me. God does not do that. We are to be kind and merciful to others. And I forgot to put this in the notes, but this is really important. Remember, Satan is the one who is called the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the one who will accuse you and tell you you're horrible and you did everything wrong and all of those kind of things. That does not come from God. That is from the enemy. And keep that in mind when you want to beat up on somebody. You are assuming Satan's work. Our job, our calling, to be like our God, we're to come alongside, we're to be merciful to others. And then what goes, what follows so well after these two things is we're to walk humbly with our God. Again, here are two words. The first one is yalak, which means to go, to come, to walk alongside. It's a manner of life. It's to bring, to carry, to cause, to walk. And then the second word, of course, is sasana, which means humbly, to be modest, to be lowly, to show humility. Walking, and this is so important where it says to walk humbly. It's active, it's intentional, it's continual, it has consequences. It's a way of life where we're, in our way of life, excuse me, we're either walking away from or towards and with God. Now let me give you some negative examples. In Psalm 78.10 it says, They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. And Psalm 89.30 says, If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commands, then I will visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will not utter I will not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. So God's saying 
if my children don't obey me, if they don't walk in my commands, then they'll be punished. It's that continual way of life that's important. Now, some positive examples of walking with God in Scripture, and this is, of course, one of the most wonderful ones. In Genesis 5.22, it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 300 years and begat sons and daughters and then one day it says that he simply walked into the presence of God he didn't die God took him to heaven what an extraordinary thing you're walking along and then all of a sudden you realize hmm, <laughs> the scenery around here has changed tremendously and he was with the Lord I I often think of and as I get older, I, I, I mean that where I often think about it, where um, John Ortberg said about Dallas Willard, who is just one of my favorite, favorite Christian authors. He said, you know, he said, Dallas had such a close walk with the Lord that when he died, he probably didn't even notice. And that's what it was like for Enoch. And I thought, what an extraordinary example. What an extraordinary goal. In Genesis 6, 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. In Genesis 17, 1, it says, When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now remember, perfect in the Bible means to be complete not without sin, but to be complete, to be mature. And two, I find that incredibly encouraging. When he was 90 and 9 years old, God says, okay, get your act together now. It's never too late. We can always walk more closely with our God. Now, what does actually to walk humbly mean? And what does humility mean? I think C.S. Lewis had some of the greatest explanations for this. And it's often understood, it's often thinking, oh, we need to, you know, do dumb stuff. But um, true humility, C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. You'll be humble if you just think about other people more. And also, humility is one of those things that we really see in contrast with its opposite, which is pride. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about pride. He said, the vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I, war I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he goes on to show why it is. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. In contrast, Philippians 2 tells us what the true God is like. 
where it says, and I just, I love this passage, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. On walking humbly, the ultimate example, of course, is Jesus, who in very nature God humbled himself to become human, and then he died on the cross for us. Humility, service, putting others first, is a core characteristic of our God. Satan, remember, is always the one who says, I will ascend. I, 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 me, me, me. If position is our primary concern, we're reflecting the enemy, not our God. In conclusion, God wants us to live the lessons that we've learned. This week, focus on Micah 6.8. Take time to pray, journal, to plan how you can put those commands into practice. Remember, it's the little things. Acting justly, loving mercy and kindness, walking humbly with your God that is important to our Lord. No matter how chaotic, sad, or challenging the world might be, in the circle of people and actions and all the things that touch our lives, we can represent our God as we live justly, as we love mercy, and as we walk humbly with our God. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.